The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day, and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I am Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host. Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. You can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag BigBeacon. And the first segment of Big Beacon Radio is sponsored by Olin College, a new kind of engineering college, a privately funded national lab for education redesign with a passion for creating inspiring learning experiences. Find out more at olin.edu. And today, uh, we're, um, we're happy to be joined by a friend of uh, Olin College, uh, Al Bunchaff from uh, Dassault Systems. Welcome to the show, Al. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be here. So, Al, and, um, we want to talk about some of uh, Dassault's interesting work in STEM education and, and uh, other things in a moment, but we like to get to know our guests in this first segment, and you're uh, trained as a computer scientist and engineer, you're senior VP of a major global corporation, and uh, as I looked around on the web, you're also an aficionado and writer about jazz and blues, but let's uh, go back in the time machine. Uh, what were some of the early influences that put you on your current path? Sure, I'm happy to talk about it. In fact, as I've gotten more and more involved in education over these past years, um, it's caused me to think about what influenced me and how did I end up doing what I do. I'm not sure we think about that much when, when we're young. Um, and, and when I think back, I really did have a number of significant things starting from a very young age that um, were shaping my interests and, and shaping where I focused. Um, and I think it starts, like so many of us, uh, with, with my father, with my parents, and especially my father. Um, yes. My father was a pharmacist, but he was very fond of talking about his days at Brooklyn Tech High School. Um, and he went to uh, what I would call an experiential learning environment at the high school level. And uh, we're starting to do it again, as you and I will talk about later. But um, he was very fond of talking about the things they worked on. They had a furnace. They had a full shop. Um, they were cutting things and building things. And, and I used to hear those stories when 
when I was a boy. Um, I also remember Dad um, was a lifelong subscriber to Scientific American magazine, and it was always there in the TV room. And uh, from from a young age, I always found it fascinating to flip through it, whether I could understand it or not. And I would occasionally read an article, and we'd occasionally talk about something, or he'd point it out. So there's no question in my mind that it that it started with my dad. Um, and then, you know, as we go through life, we have various um, people who are influential. I, I definitely sure. think that one of the most influential teachers in my experience was my eighth grade earth science teacher. Mm. Uh, just the fact that I remember my eighth grade earth science teacher so well, I, I, can, I can picture him. Um, and um, he got me excited about earth science. And I think the thing that excites me about engineering and science or the sciences and the engineering disciplines that excite me the most are the ones that relate so directly to our real world that you can see it, touch it, feel it, etc. And earth science is certainly an example of that. Um, so much so that for a semester during my college tour, I was an earth science, uh, I was a geology major for one semester and an atmospheric science major for another. Um, hmm. So, yeah, so these were all things that um, I always knew I was interested in, and uh, maybe it came, it came easier to me than other topics, uh, science and mathematics, and that, that certainly got me headed in that, in that direction, David. Yeah, and thanks for sharing those stories. And it, you know, it's inter- you know, it is interesting, the diversity of the stories that uh, people tell when we talk about these things. And, and also, um, I, think it, you know, I think it's important to and we do this in every show, and I think it's important to do it because I think there's a lot of myths around how careers are formed in, in the sense that we think that if they're not somehow uh, planned and ordained by some master plan by uh, by an early age, that there's something wrong. But most of the stories, and occasionally we hear that, but more often we hear about people bumping into um, opportunities or, or it's often a who question, like, you know, who... Who influenced you and who got you excited about something as you just That's told? Right. Yeah. yeah, and and, and yeah, and, and we also on the show, you know, Mark Somerville and I wrote this book, A Whole New Engineer, and the the centerpiece of it was what we we called the these unleashing experiences that that one of the and I'm not sure it's really a difference from the olden days. I I, I love the the uh, Brooklyn Polytech story. Uh, maybe uh, the, these things are just, con- you know, what goes around comes around. But it mm-hmm. seems like there are these experiences where we um, we get a chance to take initiative, or we're encouraged to take initiative and do something that we didn't know that we could do. And then that courage leads to that initiative, leads to maybe failure and then possibly success. And, and it's those kinds of authentic learning experiences that seem to be what we're trying to reproduce. And I'm just curious what, uh, you know, what ex- and maybe we've already heard it, but what experiences or individuals uh, gave you the courage to go your own way? No, absolutely. And um, I can relate to that myself, again, reflecting on my own career, I've, I've thought about this, and there's no question in my mind that I had one of those unleashing experiences. Um, it happened for me in graduate school, but I want to tell you how I got there, because um, sure. it was not so much finding out what I was capable of, although it certainly helped to um, 
increase my confidence and, and knowledge of what I was going to do and where I was heading. But I was also on a journey of discovery um, through high school and college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I knew that I was good at math and science, at least seemed to be better than, than maybe my peers, or certainly I had an inclination towards it. I, I found it interesting. Not all people uh, did at that age. Sure. Um, and I treated, and I often tell young people this, I treated my undergraduate career um, similar to a buffet at a restaurant. I, I wanted to try everything, um, at least certainly within the domains of um, science and mathematics and technology. I was fascinated by it all. And I started um, my first year, um, I went to the State University of New York at Albany, um, at the time an outstanding uh, school and a very diverse program. I sometimes say I chickened out of engineering school as an undergraduate because I did apply to a, a number of engineering schools here in the Northeast, where I'm from. Um, and in the end, it was a combination of uh, being somewhat intimidated by the rigidity of the curriculum at the engineering sure. schools that, you know, it seemed to me I wasn't going to be able to take uh, an elective till I was a junior almost. And what if I decided I didn't like it? You know, remember I said I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, so I was somewhat intimidated, went to more of a general university, um, started off as a math major. I was a physics major. As I told you, I was a geology major, an atmospheric science major. Yep. Um, and then I started taking some computing classes somewhere in my sophomore year, going into my junior year, and I found out that I was fascinated by um, not only programming, um, which I enjoyed doing, but uh, the theory behind computing and of um, the 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 logic and the algorithms and the data structures and machine architectures and the more I got involved, the more I was fascinated by it. And so I ended up getting an undergraduate degree in mathematics and computer science. I had a double major, um, still not knowing what I was going to do with this knowledge I was accumulating. I then applied to graduate school. <clears throat> but one thing I did decide is I got fascinated enough with computing that I was convinced that maybe I should have gone to engineering school, but now mm. that I have the opportunity, I'm going to try to do that for graduate school. And so I applied to a number of um, engineering programs around the country. I was fortunate enough to be offered a research assistantship at RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Yes. Um, and there I was asked to uh, work in the Center for Interactive Computer Graphics. This was an NSF, University Industry Cooperative Research Center. And this is where the um, experience that I was alluding to took place. I, I worked on my master's degree there, um, and I was also a full-time research staff there. And one of my duties was to assist with various graduate projects. And w another graduate student uh, got his degree went off to industry, but we had an obligation to deliver a working piece of software to United Technologies. And so I picked up um, software that the student was uh, writing and got his uh, degree based upon for uh, modeling surfaces using non-uniform rational B-splines, which at the time was a, um, yep. a leading-edge technique for surface modeling. I had to complete the modeling and uh, then write the machining software and deliver it deliver it to Farrell Bridge, a company in the UK, uh, who makes a product called the Banbury Rotor. It's still used today in tire rubber mixing equipment. 
Um, and I had the opportunity to deliver that software to them, to go over there to work for a month in the factory, to teach them how the, fact- how the software worked in their factory, yep. uh, and then to work with them to finally cut a prototype blade out of styrofoam and then wood and then finally the first metal mixing blade. To me, that was um, an unleashing experience, David, is an understatement. It was the beginning of a bright, shining light that came on in my world. Mm. And I realized how we truly transform the world with the work we do. We took this factory from the 18th century or 19th century you know, to the 20th century techniques. They went from cutting a blade similar to the way you copy a key to modeling it and being able to adapt it and be able to iterate on um, changes and uh, make various scale modifications, and I could go on. So um, it was an unbelievable experience for me. And finally, it was the thing that to me cemented how all of these various skills and techniques I was learning were going to come together in the real world. Um, and I never looked back. So that, to me, that was um, quite a significant experience in my life. Yeah, and I'm hearing in that so many, so many things. Uh, you know, the communication piece and getting getting people to use this this tool, this new tool that was foreign to them, and 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 uh, there's there's even cultural elements I'm hearing in that, and and. Um, and but also, you know, the the technical side and and taking something um, uh, from from theory into practice. Anyways, there's just so many nice and rich pieces in that, and 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 uh, and the excitement in your voice communicated how important it was as well. You know, I and and actually, as I was looking at, I was kind of doing a little um, web work, and we hadn't talked about this before when we talked, but I I noticed that you're. Um, you have another Twitter feed that's about uh, jazz and blues, and that you you've been a writer for Jazz Improv Magazine. What's uh, what's the jazz and blues piece of your life about? I sometimes say that if I ever felt that I could have made a, a living in music, like I've done in technology, I might have headed that direction. Uh, music has been part of my life since I'm a little boy. Um, my mom used to tell a story that. Um, I insisted she had to buy me a trumpet when I was like eight years old. I I have no idea why I picked that instrument, but I did apparently. Um, They told me, well, in like fourth grade, you can start taking music lessons, and it wasn't good enough for me. So they finally, for the holidays that year, bought me a bugle. It was somehow some kind of a compromise, and within days, I guess I was playing all the bugle calls, driving my parents crazy probably. (laughs) Um, And I started playing trumpet and cornet and and I picked up other brass instruments as a young uh in school I played french horn in the orchestra um and I followed all the popular music as a boy and that evolved uh as I became uh later in life I also played french horn in the jazz ensemble in high school so um I began to take an interest in jazz music and as I got Older, I took. Uh, I still like some pop music, but I, I listened to a lot of jazz music and uh, became friends with people in in the industry. I have a number of friends who are musicians. Um, I have lots of stories of meeting them in various parts of the world. As I, I am lucky enough to travel the world through my career, and I'll go check out a jazz club in a different city around the world. And when I moved back from uh, Tokyo, where I lived and worked for almost five years at the time I was with IBM, uh, to New York here through some friends and colleagues. Um, 
the editor of the Jazz Improv magazine said he was looking for um, some additional points of view, not from professional critics or, or musicians, and so I got conscribed to write reviews. Um, and when I had time, more time in my life, I was doing that uh, maybe about once a month, writing live music reviews. So, And I find it very common, David, that um, engineers and scientists and even physicians have artistic interests and isn't so much of what we do about design and the aesthetics mm. of the things we create and making them work in the world. After all, in the end, uh, most all of our innovations are used by people. Um, and so there are a lot of aspects of uh, art and aesthetics and uh, that come into the engineering world. And I've found many, many people I cross paths with have, whether it's music, although music is a common one, um, they have various uh, interests in the arts and other, other pursuits that um, fit right in with what we do as engineers as well. Yeah, and we're, we're going to talk about uh, STEM, uh, STEM education, uh, you know, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. But sometimes people these days, people are throwing the A in for arts. What's your, what's your thoughts about the, uh, the STEAM versus STEM uh, discussion that's ongoing? Well, I don't, I don't think it has to be uh, STEAM versus STEM. I think um, there's absolutely an artistic um, component to so much, to so much of, what, of what we do. And, and having an appreciation for the, uh, I'll call it the softer attributes of our, of our innovations and creations, I think is essential. So I, I think um, there are some very specific hard skills we have to gain as engineers um, and you know we deal with a lot of things that are binary for which there's a right answer and a wrong one but yeah, uh, yeah. ultimately our, the arts uh, is a critical component of shaping those creations and making them uh, even more even more effective or even in some cases acceptable uh, to fit into society so I, I think it's an essential aspect um, and I'll tell you in passing also that um, at the National Academies, where I was honored to be invited onto a committee, they spell it with two M's because the second M is medicine in their case. And I've heard uh, story after story of so many uh, places where the arts has been uh, a critical component of uh, also brought into the medical education environment. Um, drawing, for example, is an important skill that many physicians need to have. So um, I absolutely think there's a continuum of of skills here, and it's an important uh, part of as we think about being well-rounded citizens, not only engineers, I think it's essential. And we need to take a little bit of a break, but after the break, I'd like to continue our conversation, talk a little bit about uh, the company that you, you now work for. You work for IBM, and now you work for Dassault Systems, and uh, let you t tell a little bit about um, this Dassault and, and uh, what they're doing with STEM, STEAM, or, or STEM, STEAM with two M's um, in the next segment. How about that? I look forward to it. This is Big Beacon Radio with our guest, Al Bunchaft from Dassault Systems. Uh, stay with us, and we're going to talk about uh, uh, Dassault Systems and STEM. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. The second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates Incorporated. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help transform your educational institution or organization. Um, and also, uh, the segment is sponsored by A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education, the book that's changing, transforming higher education. It's not just for engineers anymore. And we're back with Al Bunchaff from Dassault Systems. And Al, in the last sec- segment, we were talking about some of your experiences and and uh, just starting to talk a little bit about um, uh, about your career. Um, you, you worked at IBM. Uh, you've had a number of positions at uh, uh, Dassault, um, for our listeners who may not be familiar with your company, what does Dassault Systems do? Thank you, David. Um, we are a software company. Uh, many people know the name Dassault because of Dassault Aviation, uh, a separate company that makes uh, aviation equipment. Uh, maybe the Falcon business jet is something people are familiar with. We are not Dassault Aviation. We are Dassault Systems. We're 100% pure software company. We spun out of Dassault Aviation in 1981. We're a $3 billion global company, 14,000 employees, approximately 4,000 here in the United States. And we make a full suite of software that we refer to as the 3D experience platform. It powers innovation across a wide range of industries from uh, aviation, every commercial aircraft you've ever flown on was designed with our software, to things like consumer goods. Uh, Procter & Gamble, for example, is a client of ours. They use our simulation software to make sure Pampers diapers hold the right amount of liquid and don't spill. Um, right on through even financial services company who use our um, software to manage their innovation pipeline of offering. So um, we have a wide range of products in computer-aided design, simulation, manufacturing, process automation, et cetera, uh, across a wide range of industries. And, and you've had a number of, um, well, you've had a number of different roles over your career, but what is, what is it that you do now for, for Dassault Systems? Yeah, I joined in 2010 as the managing director for the Americas, and 
Um, I know we want to talk about STEM in this call, and I'll, I'll comment because uh, I was involved setting the strategy there as managing director. Uh, then I spent a few years um, creating and running a government-focused subsidiary, um, which is now led by another gentleman. It's called DS Government Solutions. Uh, and then last year I took over what we refer to as global affairs, uh, which is our externally facing activities here in the Americas. Um, I have the academia team that reports to me, and so I work with uh, schools all across North and South America. Um, and um, I also lead our, uh, found, our, our newly created Adesso Systems U.S. Foundation, which maybe we'll have some time uh, to touch on uh, later. Yeah, and and uh, and let's come back to that. And I think one of our, uh, you know, so this show is about transforming higher education in particular, and it, and uh, Big Beacon started from its roots in engineering education. But um, let's talk about STEM education more broadly. I understand that Dassault has a focus on improving STEM education. Now what's what's that about? Very, very much so, yes. It's, it's critically important to us, and I'll try and explain why. Uh, when I came into the company, uh, we were still um, evolving from a number of recent acquisitions. The company has bought a number of companies, nowhere more so than here in the United States. Um, our headquarters is up in the uh, Boston area, Waltham, Massachusetts, but we have major offices in Providence, Rhode Island, Detroit, Michigan, Seattle, Washington, Los Angeles area, the San Diego area, I could go on. Uh, there's a number more. And what I found was that these organizations, many of them were doing good things out in the community, uh, very proud of those things, and rightly so. Um, but there were no unifying themes uh, tying together and coordinating what these different organizations were doing. So we formed a board across the various units of the company here in the United States, and we got together to discuss how to better unify and focus our activities. We selected a number of areas to focus on, um, but none more important, and number one on our list was STEM education. The reason being that, first of all, a number of the groups were already focused there, but more importantly, it goes back to who we are and who our clients are. You know, first and foremost, we describe ourselves as a scientific company. We don't start by saying we're a software company. Um, we write software and produce software as the output of what we do, but we're made up of scientists, engineers, physicists, mathematicians, and in fact, the domain knowledge we bring is critically, critically important to the software that we write, essential in fact. And likewise, our customers are highly technical STEM professionals working in the widest possible range of, of industries. Um, so this STEM education challenge that we have in our country um, to produce more qualified STEM graduates and, and that we have as employers here in our country is critical to the well-being of our company and our ability to hire talent uh, that we need to power our businesses. And it's critical to our clients as well. It's just as critical to our clients as well. And so um, that's a major reason that uh, we chose to focus on STEM. And um, what uh, practical measures, uh, is, you know, so you mentioned that the efforts were not uh, particularly unified, but people were doing different things. What, what things were people doing, and then what, how has that evolved into a more uh, uh, organized uh, program for the company? Yeah, it's evolved uh, quite a bit from 
seven years ago now. Um, we, we chose to focus in a number of um, specific areas, and, and let me try to frame it for you um, in a way that will make sense for your listeners as well. Uh, one good thing that's happened in the last years, I believe, is that people have recognized that this is a significant challenge. I, I commented last week to some folks that five years ago, uh, this committee that I'm a part of, we were worried if people really understood what STEM stood for. Um, we were worried that they'd confuse it possibly with stem cells, another scientific concept. And we don't worry about that so much anymore. So we have come a long way. Um, and, and that's the good news. And there's a lot of focus in this area, I think. But unfortunately, I also think that there are many fragmented initiatives underway that we could all benefit more if we had more unified activities. It's one reason we've gotten involved in a number of initiatives that try to bring multiple groups together to unify behind certain, certain um, common initiatives, I would say. And one other thing uh, that we chose to try to look at is, you know, where are some of the, I'll say, challenges in developing a more robust uh, pipeline of um, students and individuals studying these uh, subjects, where are some areas that are maybe um, not focused on sufficiently or neglected areas that we need to focus on additionally? And two that I will comment on that we've gotten involved with, one is inspiration of young students. We focus so much on skills and testing and do they know their math and do they have these scientific skills, but do they care? Are they excited about going yep. into these fields? I mean, I personally believe that we do some of the most exciting work in the world. Um, are, are we getting young students to understand that and to get excited like we are? So that's one area, and I can comment on that further. Another, I think, neglected constituency are teachers and parents. Um, do, do, does the average uh, teacher in grade school um, know enough about um, technology and science and the fields that are, are um, emerging for young people to consider today to be able to, you know, introduce them appropriately? Do the parents know? Um, and so we've made some investments in training teachers as well as another area that uh, we've invested in. And then uh, get, getting engaged in regional and national initiatives because I think Individually, even the biggest companies can just barely move the needle in their local communities. We, we need to move this needle on a national and even global scale. So uh, we've got involved in some initiatives that we think can make an impact in that regard. Yeah, so emotion and culture, if there were kind of a main lesson or, or point in the whole new engineer, it was uh, the degree to which uh, the, uh, the emotional component is undervalued and underrepresented and the cultural element is uh, we do a lot with content curriculum and pedagogy and hardly think at all about culture and so I'm very interested in your comments about inspiration what uh, how do you how do you move the needle on inspiration what are what are some of the things that you think about well I think first and foremost it's it's getting uh, young people more exposure to these fields. And I don't mean sitting them down and having them watch a video, although occasionally that can be effective. Um, what I mean is getting them um, real hands-on exposure. I think there's nothing like doing it yourself 
that, get, that gets a young person excited uh, as to what can be done. Um, I also think that understanding the connection between the technology and the impact uh, is critical. I mean, so many young students may not get excited about um, a particular, you know, building a particular mechanical mechanism, for example. But I saw this happen at a university when you're building a device that, that uh, women will use to make their daily chores easier, for example, in an underprivileged region of Africa, um, and that's going to allow them to provide better for their family, now suddenly students are interested because they're going to change the world for these families. Um, and so understanding the impact of our innovations and not just understanding it, but connecting students to the impact of what we do combined with having them do it and gain hands-on experiences, um, those two things are, are I, from what I have seen and experienced, yeah. um, the, the linchpins of inspiration. Yeah, I really like what you just said. Um, and in many ways, it, um, you know, the, this kind of starting... In, in the iFoundry experience, we started from students' aspirations and said, you know, so we, to inspire, um, start with Aspire. And so, how, you know, what is it that you want to do or what is it that makes you excited in your life? And let's start, start there. And that's actually right. some of the problem I have with some of the existing big ticket programs like the National Academy of Engineering uh, Grand Challenges is that it started with what a bunch of scientists and engineers thought was important, not with what a bunch of kids think is important. And I, I wonder how it that might have been different had it actually started uh, started with the student in mind comment. Well, I think, you know, from what I've seen, the Global Grand Challenge program that the National Academy has created for the students who are engaged, I think they're engaged around those problems, and those problems get them excited, whether it's uh, providing um, clean water or clean energy, uh, uh, whether it's uh, helping to feed our growing global population. These are things that are important human problems that we must solve for the future of our planet. Um, but I think you're right. I think the other way, to, and I think my view is we can come at it in both directions, yes. yep. but, we shouldn't, but we shouldn't expect that because we put a problem up on the wall that automatically students will get excited about it. So I think there's, I think there's both sides of that coin, but the, I think the common point we both agree on, undoubtedly, is that when a student is inspired and excited about working on a problem that they care about, the result is, and and the effort put into it is dramatically different. Well, and that and I think we do agree there, and we see it time again. In fact, that's actually in many ways the challenge of educational transformation is is um, is is right there when we and we see it we see it right now. You you have students on these competition teams to do design the Baja cars for ASME or the concrete canoes for ASCE or the helicopters and all this stuff. And the kids put tons of time into it, uh, no credit, and they put tons of time into it, tons of learning, tons of soft skills. And and then 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 you get them in a regular classroom and um, 
why are you doing this? Because it's required. I mean, the difference between starting from uh, intrinsic motivation and, and uh, because it's required is huge. Yes, totally agree. Yeah. And so um, uh, when we talked on the phone uh, getting ready for the show, we t- you mentioned uh, an initiative called STEM uh, 2.0. What's that about? Yes, absolutely. Um, so one of the things we did as a company is we joined an organization called STEM Connector. I joined because um, I, I met the leader and was invited to join something called the STEM Innovation Task Force. And the concept behind this task force is uh, to assemble a group of diverse employers, all of whom require STEM skills in their workforce, all of whom are concerned about this STEM skill issue that we've been discussing here, um, and to develop a point of view regarding what we need versus what we're getting, frankly. Our perception of the gap that we talk about often, but we often maybe don't step back and try to write down what we see as lying in that gap. And so STEM 2.0 is a model that we developed to try um, at a high level to articulate from an employer perspective what are the skills that lie in the gap between what the educational system generalizing is producing today uh, versus what we believe we require from uh, early career employees. And we defined a model that has four uh, what we refer to as capability platforms. Um, one of them is specific to each industry. We refer to it as hard skills. But the other three cut across every field and every industry, and they are employability skills, digital fluency, and innovation excellence. And it's these three uh, capability platforms that we defined and did a lot of work on and, some, and, and significant multi-year, multiple years of research to try to articulate. Um, we would never try to tic- articulate the specific skills in curriculum. We're not educators, but rather to articulate what are the characteristics of the skills in this in this gap. And so employability skills refer to many of what people refer to as soft skills. I hate that term because they're the most essential skills as, yeah. we're, as we become professionals. Digital fluency, not everyone needs to be a computer scientist, but everyone should be fluent in digital tools. No matter what industry you go into, you're going to be required to, to utilize those tools. And innovation science, the notion of, I like to say, taking the puzzle apart and reassembling it differently. The idea that you can attack problems from many different approaches, design thinking being an important tool there. Um, and so this model has resonated well and has given us a platform, uh, the STEM 2.0 model, that is, to engage uh, with, with educators and employers and have a discussion around what they're doing to uh, change the way uh, they educate. Uh, and we, got, we also got into, through our research, um, how to impart these skills, which is, uh, I also think is very important. Yeah, and, and you know, we need to take a, a bit of a break, but I want to come back and talk a little bit more about a couple of things. I want to talk a little bit about the employability and also that uh, you've been engaged in some research around uh, you know, what's, uh, around this gap and what's missing. Why don't we take our break and come back and talk about those things? Thank you. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, Al Bunchaft from Dassault Systems. And in the next system, we're going to do exactly that.
From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon's upcoming webinar. Join us Wednesday May 10th at 4 p.m. Eastern for Four Keys to Ineffective Educational Change or How to Botch Transformation Without Really Trying. Learn the four mistakes that people make in modern change initiatives and how to overcome them. And learn how you can join Big one of Big Beacon's three communities of innovators today. Go to bigbeacon.org to sign up. Or write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to find out, out more. And we're back with Al Bunchap from uh, Dassault Systems, Al. And, and uh, we we're talking about uh, STEM 2.0, and um, uh, I was particularly, of course, I'm, um, I'm actually interested in all four components of STEM 2.0, and uh, but um, the one that resonates deeply with uh, this show is the employability, or don't call them soft skills, um, that uh, cut across cut across all disciplines, and and so how. How does the STEM, and it's not a curriculum, but how does the STEM 2.0 capabilities platform view employability schools? How do, how do or skills, excuse me. How, yeah. how's, how's, how do you look at that? Well, you know, what we've seen is that more and more uh, the skills, the technical skills we gain in school the half-life of those skills is shorter and shorter. And so depending on what field you speak to, um, the skills are often obsolete in two to five years. We have to continuously learn as engineers, as scientists, etc. Um, but the skills that persist throughout our lives and the skills that set us apart and are essential in the workspace are skills... Um, that we hear about often, but we often don't put enough focus on. Communication skills, teamwork, uh, working in a diverse team, uh, collaborating across disciplines. Um, one of the ones I love to talk about is being a good listener. You know, so many of us are used to being um, 
the one who's expected to be competent, that we're often thinking about what our next comment is going to be and not listening enough to others. So these types of skills are the ones that um, set, I think, uh, young engineers apart in the workplace. And uh, I, I like to point often uh, to a study that was done of MIT mechanical engineering graduates. Uh, yeah. You can found, find it online if you're interested in it. It's called Study on the Careers of MIT Mechanical Engineering Undergraduate Alumni. And it was updated in 2015. Uh, and their survey focused on topics about technical knowledge, engineering skills, work environment skills, professional attributes. And they asked about frequency of use, proficiency expected, um, where you learn these skills. And I'll summarize the paper by saying um, five and ten years down the road, these engineers said, um, what you taught us wasn't imp the important stuff, and the important stuff wasn't what you taught us. <laughs> and, um, and you can yeah. see the bar graphs and other charts that lay that out, but um, that, that's, a, that's a fact, essentially. And what they were referring to is leadership skills, organizational skills, project management skills, communication skills, these things that fall into what we call employability are really the essential skills when you get out into your career. Um, and yes, you're expected to know how a mechanism works or understand how certain equations are applied in context, um, but we can all go look those up if we happen to forget. Um, and so it, these, these employability skills are, um, another engineer said to me, and I think this is a good summary, um, my degree and the, the grades I got in my degree helped get me my first job my employability skills are the ones that got me every subsequent job. Um, and I think that sums it up. Yeah, and I'm, I'm actually uh, facing this with uh, one of my, my sons. Is, he's getting his third degree, got a theater degree and a philosophy degree, and now he's getting a computer science degree. So he's out in the world, and it's, it's actually uh, it's remarkable to me, I, given – my own understanding of the importance of employability or sh what we call them shift skills, um, how much emphasis is placed on on the technical component in this um, in all the tests, especially in the software field, uh, all the these uh, coding tests and so forth. And I, you know, I said, well, in what way did they do you do you think they were paying attention to your um, your soft skills, and he, he's he's got those in many ways from his his uh, theater and and philosophy yeah. degrees more so than the computer science, and and they don't seem to they don't seem to count so so much. How are to what extent are companies actually um, are they are they ready for the whole new engineer? Are they ready for the engineer who's actually got those and the technical skills both? Or, or it seems like they still are stuck on the tech, the, the technical expertise as the Royal road. I think it depends on where, where you look. I, I believe companies are starting to change in that regard, um, are, are looking, uh, quite differently than they did in the past at, at people's, um, backgrounds. More and more companies are talking about, uh, for example, a portfolio of, uh, accomplishments that they look from the student and, more and more of us are interviewing uh, for more than just the discipline-specific skills. So um, I can tell you that um, I think in my own career, it's more these other skills that set me apart as an engineer. And I think it's, it's yeah. quite common for um, when you speak to leaders in companies, 
it's often the 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 organizers uh the good communicators um the people who are good at perceiving other people's strengths and weaknesses etc that um yep. that that rise over time yeah and so and some of this is is research based there's uh there's uh, there are research studies that some of this is based on what's the research about Yes, so as part of the work we did in the STEM Innovation Task Force, we built a methodology where for each of these capability platforms separately, we went off and did a series of research, first interviewing experts in the field. Uh, We identified um, leaders in those domains, both in industry and education. We went off and did a series of interviews. Uh, We recorded all of those interviews. We then synthesized out the key key points, key takeaways from those interviews and assembled roundtables that took place around the United States in major cities, often at um, universities, where we assembled a subset then of those thought leaders to drill down further and then published a white paper or series of white papers on the topic. Anyone interested can go to the STEM Connector website and look under uh, publications, I believe, resources also. There are tabs for both. You can find some of these papers. Um, but I like to say that four years of work uh, resulted in many conclusions, but for me, two big nuggets, if you will, came out of this research. And what was amazing to me is to a great extent they were the same, whether we looked at employability skills, digital fluency, or innovation science. And the two, the two big thoughts that came out of it were these. First of all, these skills, as we touched on earlier, are best imparted through experiential learning. And we chose the term experiential learning, or we sometimes use career-focused experiential learning, um, to apply very broadly to all types of experiences, whether they be internships, co-ops, capstone projects, uh, various types of learning opportunities, problem-based learning in an academic environment are all experiential learning opportunities. Um, And the second big nugget that came out of this is that experiential learning opportunities are most powerful when they're driven through educator-employer partnerships. And, of course, we take a certain point of view. We're looking, you know, from an employer point of view. And so from our point of view, the students are exposed to real-world problems that are posed by potential employers get the most powerful experiential learning opportunities. And so we as a group of employers, and I didn't uh, use any of the names, but I I think I should, we're talking about companies like Cisco, Walmart, PepsiCo Foods, uh, big consultants like Deloitte Consulting, Tata Consulting Services, ourselves, Lockheed Martin, Gulfstream Aerospace, I could go on. These are the largest employers in the world. We had a meeting last week in Washington, D.C. called the Global STEM Talent Summit. And the companies in the room represented $2 trillion of revenue and 6 million employees who are getting together to talk about these subjects. So it's a powerful coalition. Um, and, and I think those of us who work in the field and who study education and look at it, um, these, these two big nuggets, if you will, resonate with us that uh, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm happy to say that I see education moving more and more in that direction um, at Olin College, which you touched on earlier. I'm on the President's Council there. It's a yeah. wonderful model for experiential learning uh, taken to an extreme and started right from the beginning of freshman year. And 
um, giving those students a very unique and very powerful educational experience. Yeah. Uh, just about everything good I know about uh, being an engineering professor, I learned in the being blessed to uh, coach uh, teams of three students in an industrially sponsored senior design program that goes back to the 60s in general engineering uh, at the University of Illinois. So uh, I wholeheartedly agree about the power of those real world uh, uh, experiences and and really um, and 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 the way they work is subtle. It's not, um, and it's subtly different than say made up challenges of any kind. It's it's really um, it really is special, and I couldn't couldn't agree more. And and um, I'd like to just uh, move along. I understand uh, that uh, uh, you that Dassault has uh, established a new philanthropic foundation, and it's just been announced. What's that about? Uh, we have. Thank you for asking. Um, we have. Uh, we are just now announcing and launching the Dassault Systems U.S. Foundation. Um, two years ago in Europe, we created La Foundation Dassault Systems, uh, European, French origin, as you can hear. Yes. My lousy French accent. Um, but we started that in 2015 and funded a number of projects in Europe, and I'm thrilled to announce that we've created a... Um, a similar an extension of our corporate foundation uh, for focused here on the United States. The goal of our foundation is to fund innovative uh, projects in education and research that leverage the power of 3D and virtual universes to transform education. Uh, we transform industries through the power of 3D and virtual universes, and we know that it can have a very powerful impact uh, in in education as well. And so we're excited uh, to be open for business, if you will. Uh, people can find us at our corporate website, and uh, there's a proposal form uh, there and a process in place now, and we'll begin to, uh, as we go through the year, look at proposals from uh, proposers and uh, hopefully be funding a lot of exciting and interesting work over time. And uh, I understand you're... Um you're, you are open for business, and, and I, I don't know, if, have you announced your first project or are about ready to announce your first project? Can you? We have. We have. I mentioned the event I was at the end of last week, and uh, it was at that event uh, that we announced the first grant that we've um, provided. It's to an organization called Base 11. Base 11 is in uh, Southern California, a not-for-profit that focuses on uh, lifting up under-resourced and underserved uh, individuals out of communities that they might not otherwise have the opportunity and um, helping them get a STEM education, STEM experience that will either lead to one of two goals, a, um, a, a, a job after a two-year degree at a community college or entry into a four-year program at a, at a university. And the project we're funding is an autonomous systems engineering academy uh, where students work in teams to build a drone that they'll fly off in a competition at, the end, of the, at the end of the academy. Uh, and we're working with the University of California at Irvine to develop a curriculum Thanks. that will then put into three community colleges. So um, awesome. we hope it has a big impact in L.A., San Francisco, and Phoenix area. We're working with three community colleges, Orange Coast, Skyline, Thanks and South Mountain. So uh, we're right at the beginning, and we're very excited for what this will bring down the road. 
Al, we're out of time. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, keep up the great, uh, keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. You, you've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Special thanks to our guest Al Bunchaft from Dassault Systems, and thanks to Dassault Systems, help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at BigBeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.